Good morning. How are you? My name is P.D. Mayfield, and I am one of the new guys. I serve here uh, on staff as one of the pastors, pastor of shepherding and pastoral care. Uh, The beauty of that role um, is modeled in the beauty of our Savior in that he alone gets to be the good shepherd of the sheep, um, and all of us get to shepherd together. That's what I love about my job. We get to do it with him in our midst. Um, As we worship him this morning, we find that he shepherds us even now in his word. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at um, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. As you're turning there, I'd like to just um, give my just warm appreciation to this church, this our welcome here, my family and I. My wife, her name is Kelly. I have two daughters, Claire and Olivia, um, who I am missing this morning. They're on the live stream. Um, they're in town, but my girls are sick from camp. Um, they had fun at camp. They're sick in getting home from camp, uh, to be, to be um, more clear. But it is, um, it's been wonderful to be here. Um, and I look forward to the time that we're here um, prayerfully for the years ahead. Um, As you're in Mark chapter 10, I want you to begin with this question in mind. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Have you ever thought about it that way? Have you honestly asked yourself, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Some people might even be afraid to even ask the question as if it's, too selfish or presumptuous. Others of you have a very, very long list and you're more than willing to say it. Our passage today tells of a time when two of his disciples came to him asking for him to do something for them. So this morning as we look at the text, let us have the word of God align our hearts both to our head and to our feet as we follow the path of glory that Jesus sets before us this morning. Hear God's word, and if you're able, please stand. Mark 10, starting at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten had heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The very word of God to you spoken by the very word of life for you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for the very promises of your word and the very salvation that comes from your life. So be with us now as we engage your word and and be mindful of what your spirit is doing in our hearts that we might respond by faith, trusting and resting in you, O Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Have a seat. Perspective makes all the difference, doesn't it? There is a Kenny Rogers song, speaking about perspective, uh, called The Greatest. It's about a little boy in a baseball hat standing in a field with his ball and bat. I'm not going to sing. But he says, the little boy, I am the greatest player of them all. He puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball. The ball goes up and the ball comes down. He swings his bat all the way around. The world's so still you can hear the sound. The baseball falls to the ground. Now the little boy doesn't say a word. He he picks up his ball because he's undeterred. And he says again, I am the greatest that there has ever been. And he grits his teeth and he tries again. And the ball goes up, and the ball comes down, and he swings his bat all the way around. The world's so still, you can hear the sound. The baseball falls to the ground. When you hear those verses, what do you picture? Do you imagine yourself the little boy, or do you uh, imagine yourself kind of watching the boy play? Maybe uh, you're more humble uh, than I am. But I imagine myself as a little boy, and I've done it many, many times as a kid, um, and I may or may not have done it many, many times as an adult. Putting myself in the bottom of the ninth inning with, with two outs, bases loaded, and a full count. Or, or at the last uh, final shot at the buzzer of the basketball game. These pictures that we sometimes put ourselves in reflect something of our heart. It's, it really is an ambition for glory whether it is seeking it for ourselves or perhaps even just desiring to be close to someone who has. This morning's passage describes how James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, how they sought glory. And we can look into the Word as a mirror unto our heart as it reveals how our heart seeks glory in ways contrary to the way our Savior intends. Now I believe that we are created for glory. True glory that gives us true purpose, true freedom, and the true assurance that we find in that restored relationship with our God. 
And Jesus defines such a path, a path of glory that his disciples are actually called to follow as we follow him. So this morning we're going to look at the text looking at the path of glory in three ways. The path of glory follows where Jesus leads. The path of glory leads how Jesus serves. And the path of glory rests in what Jesus accomplished. So look first, the path of glory follows where Jesus leads. This passage is in a greater context that goes back to Mark chapter 8, verse 22, at the healing of a blind man. And there, Mark, uh, in his gospel, begins to present three cycles of Jesus predicting his death. And in that, we see three cycles of the, of the disciples misunderstanding Jesus, um, and then Jesus kind of following up with further explanation of what it means to follow him. So here, in verse 32, Jesus and his disciples are going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. We see three years of Jesus' public ministry coming into sharper focus. Chad mentioned it last week in Matthew 16, when the disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, and where Peter confessed that, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at that point onward, they had been working their way south to Jerusalem. Everybody had their opinions about what would happen when they got there. Everybody had their hopes of what would happen when they got there. The emotion was, was palpable. We, we see in the text, people were amazed and people were afraid. In verses 33 and 34, we see this in a third cycle. The third time Mark brings up this prediction. Jesus explicitly describes what is about to happen to him. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Jesus was completely self-aware and completely resolute. So how do we follow where Jesus leads. We're not going to Jerusalem in the same way. We're, we're not Jesus, the Messiah. And yet, how are we to follow where he leads? To follow in the footsteps of Jesus is to bear witness about him in all areas of our lives, where we live, where we work, where we play. We follow Jesus, as we say here at Oak Mountain, we follow Jesus across the pew, over the fence, over the mountain, overseas. All comprehensive aspects of our life individually, but how we follow Jesus together corporately. We follow where he leads. We explain with our words and we demonstrate the gospel with our lives that Jesus is indeed the Christ. We share in that confess confession that Peter has that he is the son of the living God. He is king. He is savior. He is the Redeemer. And in Him we find and experience true glory. And just as He was handed over, this is a sober truth that we don't really talk a lot about. 
some of you, perhaps some of us on staff, maybe, maybe me, I don't know. I don't know who, I don't know when, I don't know how, but the call of Jesus to follow where he leads at one level is an invitation to follow him to, to what it means to be handed over. To recognize the, the consequences of what we say about our faith might not be received well, might be misunderstood, and yet we're called to a greater purpose and a greater love that would propel us forward to do such as that. We know that there are brothers and sisters in the world who are experiencing this reality in the present. We're not talking about hundreds of years ago. We're not talking about thousands of years ago. This may very well be some of our calling. Now, you may know this story, um, but we are at a point where a whole other generation needs to hear of the story. 67 years ago, four friends lived in a remote area of Ecuador to engage a local group uh, of people with the gospel. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian were killed only after a few days of interaction with the Waodani people. You may know of those parts of the story, but we, we know more of the story that is to come. We, we know sometime later, Elizabeth Elliot, wife to Jim, and Marjorie Saint, the wife to Nate, they went back into the area with the same purpose. Because they followed where Jesus led. So we have to ask ourselves, what would motivate someone to go in the first place? But even more poignantly, what could motivate us to go again after experiencing suffering and the loss of their, lo uh, their loved ones? The answer can be summed up in the very words of Jim Elliott found in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The gospel invitation to the disciples the gospel invitation to us as Jesus' disciples today is to even ask, are we being transformed by his glorious grace? And do we hold these economics of the gospel dear? What I mean by the economics, do you understand of what is gain and what is loss? How often we reverse them. But the gospel calls us into proper alignment of what that means, of what we hold dear in Christ. Now, to follow where Jesus leads is to enter the path of suffering. We know this from other parts of Scripture. We, we, we may know that very vividly from our own lives. But don't misunderstand. Jesus is not calling us to run toward suffering in a sadistic or egotistical way. Jesus isn't some cult leader that wants, to prove, uh, wants us to prove our devotion and loyalty to him by what we're willing to do. Rather, he is the one that goes before us. He serves as the example, but more than that, we see him going ahead of us with full purpose of mind, with 
complete self-awareness of what his purpose is, and that is to be a sacrifice for us because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, to deny themselves, to take up their cross. Most of us will will not be called to a physical death for the sake of the gospel, and we can praise God for that, but how we might be shaped and formed in the joy of the gospel that we would be willing to. Not because it's fun or pleasurable, but because God in Christ is worthy. Following Jesus in our context or our experiences are more likely to undermine how people view us. More and more, even in our nation or or perhaps our communities, following Jesus negatively impacts any perceived social utility. Let me say that again. Now, more than a long time, we've been here before the church, just hasn't been uh, very recent in our memory. But following Jesus can negatively impact the perceived social utility. Why do we say we follow Christ? Are we getting some benefit out of it in our relationships or community? Following Jesus can also negatively impact a sense of moral sensibilities. We're kind of living in a time where everything feels upside down and inside out. But the call of the gospel here this morning is for us to have the eyes to see the places in our relationships, the circumstances in our life where Jesus is going before us. May we follow where he leads. This brings us to the next point. The path of glory leads how Jesus serves. Look at verse 35. James and John have this request. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, um, you, in these three cycles, um, we see in the first cycle, there in, in chapter 8 and 9, we see Jesus transfiguring himself in all of his radiant splendor in front of Peter, James, and John. They're witnessing something truly wonderful and splendid. And what a mercy to witness this kind of unveiled glory prior to his death and resurrection. But now... On the, on the very edge of Jerusalem, we see James and John. Already it's one person removed, hedging someone out. How do we get closer to Jesus? As if they're whispering for favors in the halls of the king's court. Now, from one point of view, we can commend James and John. Trusting Jesus, recognizing that he is the glorious one and that he, they're taking his word at face value. You ask of me and it will be given to you. So we can commend that from one point of view, but they misunderstand something about glory. Verse 42. We see how Jesus is teaching about glory and he's discipling their hearts by making a parallel comparison with the positional leadership exhibited exhibited by Gentiles, such as the Greeks and Romans of their context, with servant leadership that's meant to be embodied by Christ followers. You see the phrase that they say, the glory of his throne. 
It's revealing something that they're anticipating about the Messiah. With the coming of the Messiah, all will be made right in Israel. The people of God will be able to live out fully the covenant relationship with with God in, in peaceful shalom. The Lord provided a redeemer that brought them out of Egypt under Moses, and now they have a redeemer that will free them from the Romans under Christ. And guess what? James and John are reasoning that if, if Jesus is the Christ, because Peter confessed it, Jesus acknowledged it, we have seen some truly miraculous things. We have heard some amazing teaching by Jesus. We are standing at the precipice of something that's afoot, that is changing History is about to hinge on these moments and their reasoning that if Jesus is the Christ, then they get to be a part of the king's entourage and get to share in all the glory. Now this is why the other ten become indignant. Because where are the other ten? They're not in the conversation. They're hedged out. James and John are coming to Jesus on the side And they're asking for the best seats at the victory celebration. And they don't get what Jesus is saying. Jesus is reversing assumptions about greatness. He changes the paradigm for glory. It's not about conquering because Jesus and his followers are more than conquerors. It's not an earthly kingdom that has coercive power, that champions merely a will to power. No, Jesus is king with transformative power that champions a deeper love. Several years ago, I read an article about Pope Francis's visit to the United States. Um, and the writer of the article asked this question, why does Pope Francis get respect, even love, in the hearts of millions, including so many non-Catholics? It was an okay article, mostly forgotten, Um, but what stuck with me was this comment that somebody uh, wrote below the article, and this was the, the person's response to that question. It's pretty simple. I'm not Catholic. I'm also not a fan of organized religion in general, but the Pope is actually talking about doing the very fundamental things that all religion is based on, his, his opinion. He is talking about people taking care of people. He's talking about lifting each other up instead of tearing others down. He wants us to care about the earth and to love each other. He is hopeful and joyful and peaceful. He walks the walk. He is the most impressive religious leader I've ever heard. He gives me faith. High praise indeed, and I would say only partially right. But there is something that this man witnesses in the life of this religious leader, and it moves him. Even non-Christians can intuitively appreciate the dynamic that Jesus is saying here about greatness. Uh, former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink wrote in his book, Servant, uh, I'm sorry, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, that the biggest deficits in leadership traits can become overcome. The biggest deficit in leadership traits can, can be overcome, but there is one type of person who can never become a good leader, a person that lacks humility. 
And he tells this story of these two uh, superior officers in his platoon. One was inexperienced but had a huge ego. The SEALs followed his commands but did not respect him. The other leader was highly decorated and, and very experienced. They followed his commands, uh, commands and they sought to emulate his leadership because he embodied humility in how he led. It's a strong temptation to connect leadership with power and control. Like the Romans, it's natural to see leadership as those who are powerful and influential. It's a, it's a human reaction. And, it, and to some degree, uh, that there are good qualities about good leadership being stewarded in that way. But leading can be reduced to merely leverage or merely pressure for compliance. Dan Allender in his book, Leading with a Limp, writes this about power and control. Power and control are a high-flying trapeze that takes a leader farther and farther above the ground with each swing. The greater his achievements, the harder it is to let go. And so how did Jesus serve? We have to come back to that. This question that's implicit in the text. How is Jesus serving? Now, if you look at verse 45, he says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The gospel writers tell us the many ways Jesus moved toward people. He saw them. He knew their need. He, he made the deaf hear and he made the blind see. He drew near to women who were discarded by society. He healed people of debilitating diseases. He came near to them. He came to those who were oppressed of evil forces and he freed them. What Jesus is doing as the Messiah is he's pushing back the curse. He's demonstrating something that is true and what is being fulfilled in him as the Messiah. The very messianic promises that are pointing him to be the fulfillment of the true Davidic king. You see, a disciple following this path of glory gains true confidence only if he lets go. This is the paradox. And confidence in God is what a leader really needs. Much more than, any, any, much more than he needs any false sense of control. We need to be broken of this false sense. And Allender, he goes on to write this, a broken leader is no longer driven by the need to impress people or to secure their approval. That is freedom. To be your own man or woman, to be in the spheres of your influence that you have in your life, whether that's the top position in your company or whether that's the, the lowest position in your family whether you're the adult or whether you're the child, we are all called to lead and we're all called to lead in the way of Jesus. May the world see this about us. May they see the marks of the Lord upon our lives, not with the pomp of power, but the humility and love to serve. This brings us to the last point. The path of glory rests in what Jesus accomplished. 
If you look back at verse 44, I'm sorry, 45, we see this, this deeper, fuller meaning of what it means for Jesus to serve. In his redemptive work, he goes beyond a mere example. He is that. He goes before us. We are to follow him. We are to take on and be changed by who he is and, and imitate him in those ways. But he is more than an example. Jesus is self-aware in this moment that he, his sole purpose is to be a ransom. Now, what does it mean to be a ransom? Now, we, we kind of intuitively know that from context that we might use the word, whether that's a person or an object that's kind of being held hostage, a ransom is that exchange of the price. Something's being held in bondage, and the price of payment for release is the ransom. And that's what's happening in the first century context. When the New Testament writers are often using, using that word, this specific, per, um, specific use of the payment that is delivering a slave out of bondage. The ransom price for freedom. Jesus is saying he is the ransom that is bringing someone out of bondage. He's, he's clearly connecting that his death as a, is an act of substitution. The original language is emphasizing that. It's emphasizing on behalf of, instead of, in place of the many. He knows that his one single life is going to be the ransom price for multitudes. His self-awareness is that he knows that he's going to Jerusalem to die and to raise. So that all things will be made right in peaceful shalom. Paul speaks of this in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Chapter 2, verse 14, Paul is reminding us that God makes us alive in Christ. With him, we have forgiveness of all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. For you this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, do you hear, do you see the beauty of this gospel that is found in Jesus? And the invitation that we have is, is to walk into the beauty of this story. To hear and believe that the gospel of your salvation is in Christ. To hear and believe and to rest in his forgiveness. You are welcomed in his family. You are invited to sit at his table. You are adopted as a child of the king who sits on the right hand of God the Father. Where he indeed rules and reigns this throne of glory. Paul Miller, uh, in his writings, he has a book called The J-Curve, where he really does an excellent job to give a shape to the gospel. What do I mean by a shape? He gives a shape to the gospel. He calls it the J-Curve. Just the shape of a J. This J-Curve of the gospel is the path of humiliation of experiencing pain and suffering, being subjugated 
to the circumstances around us in a way that as we follow Christ, we're, doing, we're going forward because we're following where he leads. We're serving um, and leading in the I'm sorry, we're leading in the way he serves, but all the while we are experiencing his rest, his calm, his peace, his joy, his very hand on our lives, and that he is present with us. And this is what brings up the, 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 the upswing of the J. He brings us to exaltation until the end of the end comes when all things are made right. Jesus embodies this teaching for what it means to be great. He switches places. He becomes the slave so that the slave can become free. He, he takes on sin so that the sinner can be freed from the bondage and the corruption and the debt of what that holds against us. He calls us to join him and follow him in that path of glory. Now, some of you may be racking your brain if I'm going to come back to the Kenny Rogers song. The end of the song goes like this. Uh, Remember, it's a little boy in a baseball hat. He makes no excuses. He shows no fear. He just closes his eyes and listens to the cheers. Little boy, he, he adjusts his hat. He picks up his ball and he stares at his bat. And he says again, I am the greatest when the game is on the line and he gives his all one last time. And the ball goes up and the moon so bright, he swings his bat with all his might. The world's as still as still can be. The baseball falls. That's strike three. Now it's supper time and his mama calls and the boy goes home with his bat and ball. And he says, I am the greatest That is a fact. But even I didn't know that I could pitch like that. (laughs) Perspective makes all the difference. How you saw the song says something about your definitions of glory and grandeur and honor and esteem. We want to experience the cheers. But as Jesus reverses what glory is, We are mindful that we give him all the praise. Jesus gives us a very different path. He flips our presuppositions about that. He he is reversing our very definitions of what glory is. He says, I am the king. I have a right to rule on the throne, and I am. But first, I have to go to the cross. And this cross bids us to come and die so that we might find that we actually and truly live. That's the beauty of the good news of the gospel. This paradox of what is accomplished by his ransom for you. Following Jesus is rarely how you imagine it to be, but it is always better than you hoped. You might think surrendering control and dying to yourself is the surest way to ruin. Because let's be honest, that's scary. Letting go of the trapeze is scary. And maybe many of you have suffered. Maybe many of you have faced ruin. Maybe you are even experiencing it now. But the good news is for you that Jesus says, this path of glory that I'm outlining to you in my own life is the only way to freedom, is the only way to joy. And we're 
We're invited into that. And so when we often come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what, you know, we want you to do this for us. Do this for me. And again, Jesus invites us to do that. And that's what prayer is, to come to him and lay our needs before him. But it is, it is not a place of demanding. It is a place of trust. Do you trust him? Are you walking with him? Are you following where he leads? Are you seeking to lead the way he serves? And in all of that, our very heart is held by him where we find our rest in all that he has accomplished. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand these things. They're your words to your disciples and they are your living and active word to us this morning. May we see and hear and know that you are worthy to be king, but you are powerful in what you do to bring about redemption. But often what you do is you flip our assumptions of what that means. So align our hearts to be with what we understand about the gospel, but move in us in a way that we might live and love that reflects our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it, PD. It's good to have PD on staff. Let's all stand and hear our call, our benediction. Already did call to worship. Time to, time to release us to, uh, in, in the midst of God's favor, so receive it. And now may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he shine his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace now and always.